Thank you, Sarah and Ed. Let me just say a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, in this world that we live, there are so many distractions. There are so many things that clamor for our allegiance. And we pray that we will be wise to invest in eternity. And we pray that our eyes will be focused on Jesus. And we thank you for today that we can come and read and study your word. Lord, please speak to us that you will not fall on deaf ears. We want to hear your word proclaim that we may follow your word and obedient in this very difficult, challenging world that we live in. Bless our time, Lord. We ask sincerely in Jesus' name. Amen. There are about 10 miracles that are recorded in Matthew Gospel, about 22 in Mark Gospel, and about 16 in Luke Gospel. And John Gospel only has seven. And John is not only the, has the least miracle, it is also written last. When John wrote John Gospel, Matthew, Mark, and Luke has been in circulation for almost 30 years. And John has told us why he put this Gospel together specifically, only includes seven of the maybe 37 miracles recorded in the Bible. Only seven. And he selectively chose these seven for a purpose. And the purpose, he already tells us, that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John tells us that he includes the seven miracles, which is known as signs. It's not just because the miracles are not just miracles per se. It is actually sign, a sign that pointing, pointing us to something. Just like we read, wrote signs, pointing us to something. So seven miracles recorded in John Gospels are known as signs. And we are currently on fourth sign of John Gospel. And the whole purpose is to direct us and pointing us to who Jesus is. So let me just begin by reading through this sign number four, which is the feeding of the five thousands, which is a very common miracle that we are all familiar with. This is a bit unique, this miracle, because this is the only miracle recorded by the four Gospels. Other than the miracle of Jesus' resurrection, is the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels. And to me, it's the most spectacular one because, as they say, it's not just 5,000. You read Matthew and Mark and Luke account, it includes women as well. So 5,000 men, if you include women and children, uh, scholars has estimated that it is probably between the size of 20 to 25,000. So Jesus actually fed about 20 to 25,000 people on that day. And can you imagine, it's not just a, a, a man was healed because he was blind or, or paralyzed. It is 25,000 people experiencing these miracles. 
So let me read to you first, and then I will unpack it for you. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed over to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. That is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. It's very clear, isn't it? They followed Jesus because they saw the sign, miracles. Because they haven't come around to acknowledge who Jesus is other than just miracle worker. So they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountainside and he sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and he saw a great crowd coming towards him, he, did not, he, wasn't, he wasn't irritated by this group of people coming because he was tired. He would tell his disciples away for a rest. And then this group of people come and so-called disturb him again. He just wants some space, but he never. He, he said to Philip, Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Another account, it tells us that they have been following, they have been warned. Jesus has compassion on them because they have nothing to eat. Hold it. Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him. So specifically, here it says that Jesus asked Philip this question, not because Jesus didn't know, He's for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to even have a bike. Eight months' wages. Some versions say 200 denarii, because in Matthew 20, one denarii, one denarii is one day wage. So 200 denarii will work out to be about eight months' wages. Would not buy enough bread for each one even to have a bike. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. And in Matthew and Mark or Luke, it says that Jesus got them to sit down in 50 or 100. So can you imagine 20,000? How many groups would that be? There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves. He gave thanks. He distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. Can you imagine they eat as much as they wanted? No need to consider, you know, parents often sacrifice for their children, you know, eat a little bit, the rest give to the children. No need. Everybody can eat until your stomach is double the size. You have to unbuckle your, your belt or whatever. As much as they wanted, he did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had not eaten. 12 baskets because each one basket for disciples. One each. With fish and, and bread because they've been busy distributing. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Only prophet, okay? Not the son of God. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, 
withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Jesus knew that they intended to come and make him king by force because they are under the Roman oppression. They want to be liberated. They have been waiting for a Messiah like King David to come and liberate them from the oppression of the Roman Empire. And so they think that Jesus was dead and they want to make him earthly king where Jesus has no intention of just being an earthly king, a liberator per se alone. In the opening verses of John 6, Jesus gives us a lesson in facing overwhelming challenges. So this is what I want to do. I want to zoom in on three characters in John chapter 6. Very straightforward characters. Philip, Andrew, and the boy. And I want to draw some application from these three person, how they respond to challenges. And then what I want to do at the end is to tie this parable up and say, why did John include this particular miracle? For what purpose? Out of so many, why he only chose these seven? And then how does this miracle actually pointed to what John said in chapter 2? How does this, sorry, I keep saying parable. How does this miracle assist his overall purpose? in contributing to present that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing in Him, you will have eternal life. So let's look at Philip. The first character I want to look at is Philip. We do not know so much about Philip. Just judging from his name, we probably can conclude that his parents were Hellenistic Jews, meaning to say that Jews who were born in a Greek culture, grew up in a Greek culture. Uh, they are called Hellenistic Jew, and therefore he named the son Philip. In case you do not know, the father of Alexander the Great is by the name of Philip. So, uh, so that's only little that we, we know. He, we, we, knew, we also know that he was one of the followers of John the Baptist. And probably we can infer from why Jesus asked Philip, indicate that maybe he was living in the nearby village. That's why Jesus asked him, where can we buy bread for all these people? We don't know, okay? This is just a speculation. But what is important is that it tells us that Jesus specifically asked Philip is just to test him. Not that he doesn't know what to do. He wants to test him. I don't know what you think of tests. Some people love tests. Some people hate tests. Test is a way to gauge where you are. Maybe people challenging the way it's being tested as well. And increasingly, um, the standard is getting lower and lower just to... You know, in this culture that we live, just to don't make people feel bad that they fail in a sense. Uh, you come to Asian countries, no such thing will happen. All right, very clear. They even streamline you and all that. Uh, good or bad, you pick it yourself. All right. <clears throat> so Philip's, Philip's. When Jesus asked him that question, Philip quickly looked at the crowd and did some mental calculation. He maybe has his big calculator up or abacus, you know, quickly did a calculation. And he said, well, eight months wages, at least, not even would fit them for a bite. Philip looks at the situation and then he responded by saying basically, basically to Jesus, you know what, Jesus is hopeless. 
It's impossible. We can't. We, we can't feed these people. You know, just send them back to their own village and find their own food, cook the instant noodle or potato chips, you know. Let them go home. Don't, don't bother too much. I mean, before we jump too hard on Philip, realize that this is not an entirely unreasonable approach. I think most of us probably would be like that too, isn't it? When you face with an overwhelming situation that you probably can't do it. You know, it's practical, it's realistic. He's not, a state, he's not living in a state of denial. He, he's not even gullible in a sense. How do you feel 25,000 people? Uh, Philip is in some sense quite right. This does seem to be a hopeless situation. I mean, don't get me wrong, I think we need to look at the problem, we need to analyze it. But I think too many times, too often, we get so mesmerized with the problem that we get pulverized by it. Like the saying goes, don't make a mountain out of a molehill. You know, there's a humorous story about a man falling from a 12-story building, and when he reaches the sixth floor, someone asks him, how's it going? He said, well, so far, so good. You know, blind optimism uh, which ignores the problem is not what I'm talking about. As someone else said that there are 50 ways to fight a fire, but closing your eyes isn't one of them. We need to acknowledge that there is a problem there. We need to acknowledge as, as Philip did that. You know? But to pass God's test, we need to take a look at the problem, but we only need to take a short look. While it is good to be realistic about any situation, Philip's approach is incomplete. It is incomplete first because he does nothing positively to change the situation. When a situation seems impossible or hopeless, when it seems nothing can be done, it is easy to do nothing. But the problem with this attitude is that it becomes self-fulfilling. When we believe that nothing can be done, then the situation does indeed become hopeless. I don't know what sort of problem that you may face. That sometimes you feel that, like Philip, you think, wow, it's a bit overwhelming, nothing can be done. And the power of negative thinking is real and destructive. As uh, I mentioned before, Sigmund, Sigmund Freud, the father of psychology, used to say that thoughts are action in rehearsal. Thoughts are action in rehearsal. What you think about, it become a reality. It's realistic, it's practical, but I think Philip's perspective is limited because he only takes the possible, earthly possibilities into account. Despite having been with Jesus for almost two years, huh, they say this miracle is sometime in the third year. Despite having spent time with Jesus for so many years, two years, he has witnessed so many miracles, somehow it haven't registered in him that Jesus is there, that Jesus actually can do something about it. It's almost like standing in front of Niagara Falls and wondering where to find water. When Jesus is there, he can do something. Our calculations are always off when God isn't in the picture. As they say, when God is in the equation, it's always equal to majority. Three mistakes that Philip make. He look at what they didn't have because they didn't have food and they didn't have money. He look at what couldn't be done. Even if you have money, where to buy his food? 
for 25,000 people. He looked at only the earthly possibilities. He never considered that Jesus could do something. So it is very good to be realistic and practical, but you have to have more than that when Jesus is in the picture. So that is Philip. The second one is Andrew. Andrew means manly. Another person enters the pictures. Andrew, whenever the gospel mentions Andrew, they don't just say Andrew. They always add Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. His, his identity is almost wrapped up with Simon Peter. Simon Peter's brother. By the way, Andrew and Simon Peter, they are brothers. There's another set of brothers in the disciples. There is James and John. So there are two sets of brothers, and both of their parents own a fishing business. So they are childhood friends. They grew up together. And Andrew is always the fourth person. He's, the Bible often mentions the inner circle of disciples, Peter, James, and John. Andrew is number four. He's always the outside the circle, you know, not, not the inner circle. Outer circle in the sense. But Andrew, if you look at scripture mentioning Andrew, Andrew is always bringing people to Jesus. He's always the one that connects. And this incident, he was the one who connected the boy to Jesus. He was the one who brought Peter to Jesus. He was the one who, in John chapter 12, mentioned about bringing someone to Jesus as well. And then Andrew seemed to, to be interested in people, and then he simply entered the scene, and he brought this boy to Jesus. Interestingly, isn't it? This verse itself emphasizes small. First and foremost is that a boy is a small, it's a boy. Five small barley dove, two small fish. Uh, he, he brought him to Jesus. God loves small stuff. Never underestimate small stuff. When the Egyptian army is chasing the people of God down, when they left Egypt, the Red Sea, when they crossed the Red Sea, Moses only has a staff. He raised up, God opened the Red Sea, and they marched through. Just one staff. And then if you are familiar with Gideon chapter 6 in the book of Judges, not Gideon chapter 6, in the book of Judges chapter 6, the judge Gideon, they were fighting an army, the Midianites. Midianites has 120,000 mighty warriors, 120,000. And Gideon only has 32,000. That is only four times lesser than than what the Midianite has. And God said, I don't want 32,000 people. And do you know how many soldiers eventually went with Gideon? Anybody know? 300. That's all. God said, I don't want 32,000. I only want 300. And with the 300, 120,000 people are gone. They became mincemeat. And Gideon won the battle. How? By focusing on God and by doing something small and something you can. Andrew is not a giant of faith yet. 
It's not like Andrew is thinking that Jesus is going to perform this great miracle. But he, he just, oh, I, some, this boy has bread and fish. And he added, isn't it? He said, well, but how far will they go among so many? I don't know. I, I, this is what, what we can find from the crowd. It's a bit... So instead of saying the situation is hopeless, there's nothing I can do, Andrew seems to be saying, well, I don't have anything, but I'll find someone who can help. And like Philip, he takes a realistic approach. Like Philip, he knows that he's facing a difficult situation. But unlike Philip, he does not despair. He did something. He said, well, maybe he's a little bit ahead of Philip. He has seen Jesus perform miracles before. I don't know. But he just said, well, here's a boy who is and emphasizing on the small. The third character that we can look at in this story is the little boy, the little boy. That John draws to our attention is the little boy with, this, with his happy meal. He doesn't even have a name. We don't know where he is from or why he's here. We don't know where his parents are. All we know is that he has a lunch with five loaves and two fish. Some liberal scholar actually says that oh, this miracle is not really a miracle, you know. It's a it's a it's a it's a story about generosity. You know, once this boy came up and Jesus blessed, everybody started to take up their meal, you know, and share with each other. Uh, it's not exactly a, a miracle in that sense. Um, but this little boy offered up after cajoled by Andrew, uh, that he's, so my point is, no matter how overwhelming our situation may be, there's always something that can be done. It might not be much. It might just be a little small things like bread or fish. There is something we can do. And then Jesus broke it and then fed the 5,000 or 25, 20 to 25,000 men, women and children. Don't estimate, underestimate small things. The power of small things is shown throughout the scripture. God loves to use small things. Humble, broken people who oftentimes feel inadequate. God is master in using such kind of people. Whether it's Gideon or Jeremiah or Timothy, Always humble. And here, David only has a sling and five pebbles. And even with that, he only needs to use one to bring down this giant called Goliath. The Lord elected not to use their might. Instead, he turned to this insignificant shepherd boy who was instructed to gather just five smooth pebbles. And from these pebbles, he selected but one. This one pebble was all that was necessary. How awesome power in a small, insignificant object. By itself, it is worthless, but given the proper circumstance, the direction by God is spelled victory for Israel. Max Lucado said, you focus on giants, you stumble. But if you focus on God, giants tumble. Challenges, problems, whatever you want to call it, will always be there. And interestingly, Chinese words 
about uh, danger, the two words that put together is actually that there's also an opportunity. Weiji, danger and opportunity. Put two together is danger, there's problem, there's crisis, but there's also an opportunity for God to do something beautiful. Do not undervalue or downplay little things or little efforts. Do not underestimate, undervalue, downplay little things. God specializes in using insignificant things for his glory. Someone wrote this poem, say, little stones make big mountains. Little steps can cover mouths. Little acts of loving kindness give the world its biggest smiles. Little words can soothe big troubles. Little hugs can dry big tears. Little candles light the darkness. Little memories last for years. Little dream can lead to greatness. Little victories to success. It's the little things in life that brings the greatest possibilities. It's the little things in life. Don't always wait for big things. Don't need to wait for big things. Then you serve God. F.B. Meyer said, Don't waste your time waiting and longing for large opportunities which may never come, but faithfully handle the little things that are always claiming your attention. Little things. Little things. There's this verse in 2 Corinthians 5 that Paul says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done, which done while in the body, whether good or bad. The word good or bad, often when we read it, it carries moral virtues in it, good or bad evil, good. But in the original Greek word, it has no moral virtue. It is a word that is being used to indicate whether the things that you do is worth, is it worthless. So it's not no moral virtues in there. So whatever we, worthless in the sense that when we do small things, when it is done with great love for eternal purpose, with God in mind, that has eternal values. That is eternal values. So we will be judged on whether or not on those things that we do that has eternal values. Whether good or bad, whether it's contributing something to eternal kingdom. That when we have to do it for the Lord's sake and then it will go down that pathway. So three figures, Philip, Andrew, and the little boy offering something to Jesus, the little boy. Something worthwhile thing for God to use to invest for direction, eternity. So let me now sit back, take an overview picture and say why did Jesus, why did John actually include these particular miracles and serve as a sign for his ultimate purpose? Because Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Don Carson says the significance of the feeding of the 5,000 is not that he provides food, but he is the food. 
It is not that he provides food. The feeding of the 5,000 is not that he provides food for the people. Jesus is trying to tell them, I am the bread. I am the bread of life. I am the food. I just... And then he went on later on, after the, the Jesus walking into the water things, he went on the next day, he had a conversation with the people. I want to read through this and then you will have a clearer picture where I'm coming from and then I'll tie it up together why John particularly used these uh, miracles to point to the people that I am the bread of life. When they found him on the other side of the lake, that is overnight already, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, What must we do to do? What must we do to do the works of God requires? Sorry, that's double, okay, the below on 29. Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. See, that's what Jesus performing the miracle is to tell them, is believe the one he has sent. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? Isn't it incredible that a person that has just ate the bread and see the miracles being performed still can say, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe that you are really the Son of God? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said, no, 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 no. You're wrong. Very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who was given who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they say, always gives us this bread. And then Jesus with a loud voice proclaiming, I am the bread of life. I am. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus was trying to tell them, no, no, I'm not just providing food. I'm just telling to tell you that I am the bread of life. And so for that, you need to read Exodus chapter 16, which we are all familiar in the sense that when, when the Israelites in the desert, God rained down manna to sustain them for 40 years. So with the remaining little time that I have, what I want to do is to show to you how Jesus is like the manna and how Jesus is unlike the manna. Like the manna that rained down from heaven, Jesus is God's provision sent down from heaven. It says in Exodus chapter 16, Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. So God said, I'll send down manna from heaven. And then Jesus says in John chapter 6, the true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then like the manna, Jesus provides essential nourishment. While the manna provides you 
physical sustenance, to sustain you physically, Jesus said, I am the essential nourishment to sustain you spiritually. Natural bread is only for the body, but Jesus said, I am the bread that will satisfy the craving of our soul. Look at verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling from, of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight, which is at evening time, you will eat meat. And in the morning, you will be filled with bread. And then you will know that I am the Lord your God. So God provides them food to sustain them physically. And then in John chapter 6, Jesus is very clear, isn't it? That he is the one that sustains us spiritually. I am the bread of life. Whoever eats of me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. I sustain you spiritually, not just physically as in the manna in the Old Testament. So those two are like manna. Jesus is like the manna, came down and sustained them physically. Jesus said, I came down, sustained them spiritually. And then Jesus went on to say, unlike manna, which only sustain you temporarily, Jesus said, I'm the bread of life that sustain you permanently. Permanently, not temporary. Look at 16. The Israelite ate manna 40 years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. Only during the time when he was, they, were, they were in the desert. I think after 40 years, they must be so tired of manna. You know? They must have different ways of making manna. I don't know. Fry it, deep fry it, steam it, you know, grill it. Uh, they must be so sick of eating manna. By the way, choices of food is only uh, in the first world anyway. When I was in Pakistan, most of the time we eat the same food. Bread, roti, you know, always roti. Every day, what are we eating? You don't have to ask what are you eating? Roti with dal. You know, standard. There's, I mean, there are, of course, a little bit option, but in terms of buffet type of choices, it only belongs to more the richer places in countries, in a sense. So, so they had manna and, and, and only temporary, but whereas Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Your ancestor at the manna in the winners, and yet they die. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. And so there you go, that Jesus is saying that while well, this bread is temporary, but unlike the manna, I am not like the manna, it's only sustain you temporary. My bread is permanent. And lastly, unlike the manna, which that Jesus offered only to specific people at a specific time, Jesus Christ, the bread of life, offers spiritual nourishment and eternal life to everyone, not just only to a specific group of people. Look at that. As I said, the Israelites, they ate the manna until they reached the border of Canaan, only for them. Whereas Jesus said, here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone, not just for the specific group of people, anyone may eat and not die. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven, that whoever eats this bread will live. Will live. 
But there is a sad ending to this group of people. If you read further down, you, today you, you go back and read the John said, there's a sad ending to this group of people, even though experience a miracle. They move from being a seekers to become a complainer. And then they quarrelers. And then down in verse 66, 666, John chapter 6, verse 66, they turn away from Jesus. Despite experiencing the miracle, despite eating the bread, they left Jesus. Why? Because they didn't get from Jesus what they wanted. And they didn't want from Jesus what he offered. It's a sad ending to this story in some sense. But many pastors find very comforting in this story in the sense that Jesus turned away 25,000 people. No matter how bad my sermon may be, I turned away maybe 150 people. So we feel somewhat satisfied. Jesus did worse than me in that sense. Well, that's only a side joke. It's not, not serious. <laughs> because of their search for earthly bread and the people could not stomach the spirituality of Jesus' message. They cannot see what they want. They only want the immediate needs to be satisfied. When Jesus says this to them, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. You don't really want me. You only want what I provide for you. When I make you well, your life runs smoothly. That's why you look for me. But you don't actually want me. You want what I can provide for you. That's all. And Jesus said, Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. What Jesus was, if I may paraphrase it, Jesus seems to be saying this. Jesus said, What you Galileans have got to realize is that there are two kinds of bread. There is a bread that nourishes your bodies that will one day perish. And there is a bread that nourishes your souls which are destined for eternity. And the trouble with you is that your whole mindset is orientated around the former. In a word, you are basically materialists. Materialist. You ate the loaves and you had your fill. You perceived the economic benefits, but you completely missed the spiritual significance of what happened. You may have seen a miracle, but you did not see the sign. Don't you realize that when I look at you, I didn't see you a bundle of hungry bodies incapable of providing food for yourself materially? I see a multitude of human beings searching in vain for something to satisfy that spiritual vacuum that was gnawing at your hearts. I didn't see empty stomachs. I see empty souls. And my willingness to feed you physically was just a symbol, a pointer, a sign of my willingness to meet that much deeper spiritual need which is your real need that you may be blinded off. I fed you to make you realize who I am. I mean, how many parents can say that? You try to lead your kids down a particular way which is for them good. They can't see it because they are so blinded by the immediate needs but not the real needs. 
And we have to meet the real needs and not just the immediate needs. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Bertrand Russell, one of the greatest thinkers in the 20th century, he was born into a Christian home and he was taught to believe in God, but he rejected his training and he became an outspoken atheist. He wrote a word, why am I not a Christian? And there's a counter book that someone wrote, why am I not an atheist? His daughter, Catherine Tate, wrote a book entitled, My Father Bertrand Russell, in 1975. And she just died, maybe 2021. And she, she, she became a Christian, despite of her father that is not. And she said in the book, on the reflection of his, her, her father, then concluding by saying this, he says, somewhere at the bottom of his heart, in the depths of his soul, there was an empty space that once had been filled by God. And he never found anything else to put in it. And he never found anything else to put in it. St. Augustine said, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are forever restless until they rest in you. Your hearts will forever be restless because there is a God-shaped vacuum in your heart that only God can fit in to that vacuum shape. All else will fail. C.S. Lewis or Clive Staple Lewis, as he, he wrote in a book, Mere Christianity, he has a quote there and I'll finish with this. He said, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food that can satisfy the hunger. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water for the duckling to swim. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. And then he went on to say, if I find myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. If I find myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And Augustine was right. My heart is forever restless until the vacuum shape in my heart is filled by God. 
Jesus knew our deepest needs were not physical but spiritual. And by feeding them bread, he had demonstrated that he was the new and greater Moses. But the physical bread was not important. What was important was Jesus himself, who is the source of all spiritual life. Jesus could do much more than multiply the bread. He was talking about himself. He was the bread, the spiritual bread from heaven that gives life to you when you come to him. Let's pray. Lord, you are the bread. You broke the bread and fixed the 5,000. But the disciples don't yet understand that this miracle communicates that Jesus truly is the Son of God. That this God has taken on a body in order to go to the cross himself and be broken so that every man, woman and child who comes to him in faith will be fed with food that does not perish, but food that leads to eternal life. Lord, this is the beauty and glory of Christ's miraculous feeding of the 5,000. It is beautiful, compassionate, foreshadowing of Christ breaking the bread of his own body in order to feed us, to save us, and he himself being our greatest satisfaction. He is not like the bread of earth which will leave us hungry a few short hours later, but that he is the bread, the God, who we were created to enjoy in perfect relationship for all of eternity. Dear Lord, thank you. May we eat of this bread. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Amen.